Well, first of all, we're glad everybody could make it. And um, as you can tell, we're going to talk about the power of God today, given that it's Easter. It, it kind of goes in, in sync with that. But if you guys have known me and know me for a long time, one of the things that we have a problem with in, in our society is when it comes to the things of these traditions that we have, we don't know why we have them or where they came from. And as we get into this a little bit, I'm not going to undo everything, but we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Like, you've got to understand how crucial that is. Because the cross, in and of itself, if Jesus went, hung on the cross, and died, it's a great story. Here's a good man who was wise beyond his years, who gave something to society, but died at the hands of evil men. And we would cherish that story, but that story doesn't matter if he doesn't resurrect. Because there's been thousands of those, thousands of them, throughout time. You see, everything that we talk about today at the corner of what we believe centers around the resurrection of Jesus. And if that didn't happen, then all of this is a waste of time. Because I don't know about you, but I don't know too many people that once died, were in the grave for three days, and then knocked on my door. Because if they did, I'm not answering. It's just reality. But there was so much that was going on, and we're going to begin to paint this picture. And what we're doing is we're just going to look at Scripture. And we're going to look at it somewhat exhaustively, and I'm going to do my best to get you out of here at a decent time. How about that? Because I like y'all. So let's start in Luke chapter 22 today. Luke chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 39. It says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives. This is Jesus, as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. And when he came into the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, before we go too far, we've got to ask the question, where did he go? The place that he went is Gethsemane. This is a place of the grave. We got a picture of it here. This give you an idea. Should be a picture. Oh, there we go. This is the area of Gethsemane. He's hanging out in the cemetery. Okay? Now, some people try to make a big deal out of this like it's typographical. He, he was just purposely foreshadowing what he was going to do. Whether that's true or not, it's irrelevant. This is just happens to be the area that he was in. And so when you talk about this, you're like, okay, what did he do? He went to a place that most Jewish people would not hang around because their custom and their law forbid them from touching anything that was dead. They didn't hang around here, kind of like most of us today. We don't want anything to do with that. And so when he's praying, he's praying to God because he knows what's coming. And you notice it talks about him sweating blood. But he made a statement here in this verse. He says, take this cup from me. Now, we often read this, and we're like, oh, that's cute. In other words, take this burden from me. But Jesus didn't just say cute things. See, what happens oftentimes is we read things into Scripture. We glaze over it because we think we know what he's talking about, and so we assume something. We read it from the framework of which we live. But if you don't know, I will help you know that all of these writings were done by Jewish men. And you know who they were written to? Not you and I. They were written to Jewish men. 
So it helps to look into this a little bit. So we have to ask the question, what cup is he talking about? Because that matters. So let's go there. Let's go back up a little bit to verse 14 in Luke chapter 22. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Now this is a big statement. See, the hour that had come was the hour of the time in which they would start the meal to Passover. And he says, I have long desired for this. I wanted this to happen before I suffer because I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That means there is going to be a fulfillment of this. Go to verse 17. So he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them. This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Now, let's stop. Those cups are two different cups. If you've ever been to a Seder meal, you kind of already understand this. But there were four cups in the Passover meal. The cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of restoration. And they're all Old Testament passages associated with this. But the first one was the cup of sanctification. Happened early in the meal. The second one was the cup of deliverance that God had delivered his people. Because remember, what are we doing? Passover was what? It was when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. This is what it is associated with. And so the cup of deliverance happened early in the meal. But when they completed the meal, the cup after supper, came the cup of redemption. This is the one he's talking about. What cup was he talking about in the garden? Let this cup pass from me. The cup of redemption. You see, when we take communion, we kind of just do it ancillary, but we, we don't really look and say, okay, wait a minute. What are we doing here? You see, he took the bread and broke and said, this is my body. He took the blood and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. The redemption of the souls of mankind. And so, when it talks about him bleeding out when he's in prayer, when he's in anguish, when all of this is going on. It's a medical condition called hematidrosis. I, 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 I'm not medical, I can't pronounce it. But it was this overwhelming anguish that would take place where someone would literally sweat drops of blood. It happens. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. Now, here's the point. Why did the New Testament writers think to capture what was going on? Did they know about this condition? Probably not. All they were doing was writing down what they saw and what they heard. You see, you've got to understand something. When you read the Gospels, those are eyewitness accounts of what took place during the life of Christ. And as you compare them, you might start to see there are some distinguishing marks about them. As an example, Mark, okay, was the scribe of the Apostle Peter. And so, when you get to the, all the dumb stuff that old Peter did, it doesn't list him by name. And there's a reason for that. It might be because Peter was paying him to be his scribe. 
Like, I'll just leave his name out of that. You know, you can figure that out. Speaking of dumb stuff that Peter did, he cut off a man's ear. Now, let's jump to John chapter 18, because there's some more stuff going on. We're, we're painting a timeline is what we're doing. We're going to start in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered, and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with the disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, he went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeing? So here we have Jesus' accuser. This is Judas. Now, can you imagine Judas's life? He was with them. In order to be an apostle, what did he have to do? He had to see Jesus be baptized. He had to be with him from that moment. He watched the Spirit of God descend upon him. He saw every miracle. He heard every sermon. He watched every demon be cast out. And yet, here he is being paid off. Judas got mad when Mary was washing Jesus' feet because what she was using was very expensive. Judas gets on to Jesus, or excuse me, Jesus gets on to Judas and doesn't take it very well. This is all shortly after that. Look at John chapter 13, verse 2. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and he should depart to the world, to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to end, and supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. You see, we see the timeline when this happened. He was already, this, this whole thing started right after, or right before the Passover. So let's go back to John chapter 18. Let's read this again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went to his disciples over the brook Cadron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, was also there. Jesus often met there with the disciples. So Judas, having received a detachment of troops, officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with the lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things uh, that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Now, a detachment of troops is not like a few guys. A detachment of troops is three to six hundred men. They brought an army to get one guy. Now, why would they do that? Because there was a good chance that his followers would be in uprising. You've got to understand something. There were rabbis all over the place, and every one of them had their disciples. But the followers of Jesus were madly devotional. You don't feed 5,000 people without a crowd. These people were around him all the time. But then it says they brought lanterns, torches and weapons to get one person you see lanterns and torches are not the same thing lanterns is the greek word lampus which lights up a room but a torch which is the greek word phanos is a long burning oil lamp they were prepared to go all night long if necessary whatever it took but the weapons the roman soldiers they're always ready for a fight so they're prepared they're taking this seriously Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now you'll notice that the he is italicized in every Bible. This is because in the original King James, it was added. Because it helps it make more sense. But the word I am is the Greek word ego imi. This isn't the first time that Jesus has said it. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he said, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. You see, what is the bold statement that was going on there? What made them pick up their stone? It's the declaration that he was making in that moment. See, Jesus is going at it with the Pharisees. The statement that was made in verse 58 made them mad because in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When he made that declarative statement, he was claiming to be God. There was no way around it. But there was something bigger than that. There was a power moment in the statement that Jesus made. Look at verse 5 again. He answered him, Jesus Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. It knocked everyone down. Three to six hundred soldiers. Wiped out. Think about all the times that God had done that through the history of Israel. He told them to march around seven times and then blow the trumpets and the walls will fall down. You'd have a hard time convincing me of that. But this is the power of God. When it talks about this, it depicts some force that's unexpectedly, suddenly and forcefully knocking them down until they were like dead. That is what the Greek literally reads. They were, it wasn't like they just knocked down and they got back up. They were down for the count. How many soldiers did they need to come and get Jesus? The answer is one. Because they couldn't take him without Jesus being willing. That's power. Verse 7. Then he asked them, whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus is now. Jesus answered, I've told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke of, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? What cup? The cup of redemption. You see how this keeps tying back. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was not taken without his willingness. I know there's a movement out there saying he was taken by evil man and killed. That is not true. He had to be willing to do this. And here's good old Peter doing whatever he can to protect Jesus. And you can understand that. Because Peter, it's different than it is today. When you devoted yourself to a teacher, you devoted yourself to a teacher. For three years he had been with him day and night. Every moment, everywhere he went, he was there. This is a move of desperation. But it's not just some random guy. It's the servant of the high priest. Malchus is someone who Peter would be very familiar with because when the high priest was there standing up, he would be at the right hand of the high priest. Now the high priest here was a Sadducee. And you've got to understand something and you can look this up in Scripture. But they did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe any of this. And when he did this, this moment is punishable by death. Peter rightfully deserved death. That is, if there's evidence to prove it. Because as you know, Jesus reached out, grabbed the side of the guy's head, and healed his ear. So the evidence was gone. 
This is the last miracle that Jesus does before he goes to the cross. But there is one more example of the power of God in this event that almost always gets overlooked. And it's because we don't understand the context of what was going on here. Remember, written to Jewish people by Jewish people. Jump over to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 43. Same event that is going on. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid, then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Do you notice the difference there? This is Mark writing, Peter Scott. One of them who was nearby. You guys catch? I think that's funny. I don't know. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now watch verse 51. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So picture this. Among all these soldiers is a naked kid in a robe. The young men laid hold of him, he leaves the cloth, and he flees from them. Some will try to tell you that this is Mark writing himself into the story. Some will say that this is John and that he had fallen asleep and he slipped out of his clothes when he was running. Okay? We always try to come up with some solution to these problems. But here's the thing. Rich Jews, when they would bury their dead, did so in a linen cloth and they were always coming from Egypt. There's only one Greek word that is ever used to talk about these grave clothes. And it happens to be used here with that linen cloth. It was a burial shroud. It was very expensive. In fact, you see the same word used in another place. Jump over to Mark 15 real quick. Verse 42 says, Now when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body of Joseph. Then he bought fine linen took him down and wrapped him in the linen and he laid him in the tomb which he had hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus observed where he was laid. You see all around Gethsemane is at this cemetery and on this night when Jesus spoke these words there was a blast of power that comes out of his mouth. It knocked down the soldiers. It also raised this little boy from the dead. It's the exact same word used. That's how we know what it is. You've got to understand something. Outside of that cloth, they didn't put them in a suit and tie or a nice dress. Or they were buried naked with the cloth only around them. This is how we know what this is. So as we get past this part, now we're going into the examination phase of this story. Because you have to understand something. Every bit of this has to do with Passover. Remember, what, what, what is the cup? It has to do with Passover. 
Every bit of this has to do with Passover. So we're getting to the examination phase. Once we get into this, you're going to see a couple of things here. We're going to talk about the darkness. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Most of you guys know this story. Verse 45. It says, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, here's the deal. If I were to do a complete timeline of everything that would happen, number one, we'd kick over a ton of sacred cows along the way, and number two, you'd probably be here for three hours. So we're skipping parts, okay? Maybe we'll get them next year. We'll just cross that bridge when we get to it. But I want you to understand something. When people read this, what do they assume that just took place? Because it was darkness from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Now, you do not have to have a master's in mathematics to figure out that that is three hours. You can go to public school and do that math. And so, three hours, what does everybody assume that happened in this moment? An eclipse. Do you know what the longest recorded eclipse is? Eight minutes. It's a long ways from three hours. You see, there was something else going on. And if it was just written here, that would be good. But do you realize that this is talked about in several other places throughout history? I'm going to show you a couple. But remember, what was Matthew writing? What he saw and what he heard. There are three names that I want to show you. Flagian, Thaddeus, and Julius Africanus. Now, Thallus, uh, he wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean, the world since the Trojan War. He wrote his original history about A.D. 52 is what they think. His original writings have been lost, but Africanus who was a 3rd century historian, so they were around at this point, he tells us in his book as of the history explaining what Thallus had wrote and the darkness and the eclipse of the sun that apparently attempted to ascribe a naturalistic explanation to the darkness during the time of the crucifixion. In other words, it was written by Thaddeus, and Africanus talks about it. So we're seeing something here. But look at another one. This Flagion guy... He was a Greek historian. He wrote a whole chronology around A.D. 137. Here's a quote from one of his writings. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympian, so this is right around 33 A.D., there was a great eclipse of the sun and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day so that the stars appear, even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia and many things were overturned in Nicaea. This is a confirmation. It's a powerful confirmation of the accounts. Remember, Matthew's writing is his eyewitness testimony. He's not trying to prove anything. He's writing down what happened. He identifies around the same time frame, and he writes about a great earthquake that took place and this darkness. Now, like Thallus, he feliciously attempts to interpret it as some sort of solar event that took place. But Africanus writes a five-volume history of the world, which would have been a lot easier back then. We've had a lot more time to cover since that time. Right around AD 21, he was a pagan that converts to Christianity. His scholarship on history impressed the Roman emperor at that time that he entrusted them and hired them with the responsibility of building the emperor's library at the Pantheon in Rome. You don't get that job unless you're good at what you do. You've got to be accurate. But look at what he writes. 
On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. The darkness, Thalus, in the third book of his history, calls as, appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. For the Hebrews celebrate the Passover on the fourth day, 14th day according to the moon, and the Passover of our Savior falls on the day before the Passover. But an eclipse of the sun takes place only when the moon comes around the sun. It cannot happen at any other time, but in the interval between the first day of the new moon and the last of the old, that is, at their junction. How then should an eclipse be supposed to happen when the moon is almost diametrically opposite the sun? Let opinion pass, however, let it carry with majority with it, and let its portent of the world be deemed an eclipse of the sun, like others important only to the eye. Phlegion records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was an eclipse, a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth, manifestly that one of which we speak. But when what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake, the rending rocks, and the resurrection of the dead, and so great a perturbation throughout the universe? Surely no such event as this is recorded for a long period. It's a mouthful, but what did he just describe? Everything we're about to read. So you've got to understand something. The gospel writers were writing what they saw and what they heard. Matthew 27, verse 51, because at the point in time where Jesus is just getting ready to die, all of these things are going, and at the moment where he says, it is finished, to tell us die, there are things that are happening. Look at verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked. The rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now you've got to understand, again, a couple of things. When it talks about the veil... Most of us don't know what it is, but let me show you, okay? This is the tabernacle. This was the first thing that Moses built. He was directed on every part of it by God, and I didn't bring my pointer in here, and I should have. But you can see they would walk in. It was always to the east. You had the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and then you have up here the menorah, or the altar of light. Back there, you see that curtain. This is what separated the holy place, which is where the first division is, into the most holy place. And there was the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Think about Indiana Jones. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was called the Mercy Seat. The Mercy Seat was guarded by two cherubim, which were carved on there, made out of gold. And that is where the Shekinah glory was. You can see that light. It was known as the throne room of God. Now, why does this matter? It matters because when we go to the temple, we see it the same, but yet different. If you'll go to the next one for me. Here we go. Now, the temple got a little fancier, a little bigger. The tabernacle was meant to be mobile. As the Jews were traveling around, they would pack it up and they would move. What would happen is the glory of God would lift, move to a new spot. They would go, resurrect it, and then they would go about their day and move again when they had to. But now we have a place in Jerusalem. So the same stuff is happening. You have your altar on the outside. This is the outer courts. This is where the sacrifices were made. You had your brazen laver here, and they had several of them because there were several priests. And what they would do is they would wash and clean and all that kind of stuff. There's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into all of this. Everything on the outside was always made of bronze. Everything on the inside was made of gold and fine metals. You go into where you can see the priest standing there, the 
holy place. You had the same menorah, only more of them. You had the same table of showbread. And you also had the altar of incense. And then you can see the stairs. And some of this is artist rendition. Understand that. The descriptions are, are very uh, uh, complex, but yet, you know, all the ornateness and how it is, we don't necessarily know exactly how it was laid out. Where at the top of the stairs, what you cannot see in this picture, but I'll show you in another here in a moment, is where that veil would be. Inside of there is, again, the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant, with the mercy seat, and now they've, they've built two more things that are guarding there. But this is where the presence of God was. When you go to the next one for me, this is that veil. This is in the temple. Now, you'll notice this man here. He was the high priest. You'll notice he's in white. Now, if you know anything about their, their culture and how they were supposed to dress, they only dressed like this one day a year. This was on the Day of Atonement. And what would happen is the high priest, is he was required to first make a sacrifice for himself. He had to mikvah, cleanse him. Mikvah means a, a, an immersion, like a bapt, uh, baptism. He would cleanse himself, get forgiveness of his sins, and that's for lack of a better term, but just to keep moving. And then he, would, he was obviously dressed in all of this, and he would take some of the incense out of the altar of incense. And then he and only he on that day could walk through that veil into the presence of God. And as he was doing all of this, he was cleansing this. If he made any mistake when he walked into the presence of God, he would fall dead immediately. It was a serious thing. Because the presence of God was so strong, he had to get every single detail right. Miss any detail, we got a problem. Now, here's what's important about this veil. This veil is not a curtain. It was 60 feet long. It was 30 feet high. And it ranged in thickness, weaved together between 4 and 6 inches. They say about the width of a man's hand. So it really depends on the man, right? They say that it weighed so much it would take 300 priests to lift it up. But what it did, I mean you think about it, some of you guys got blackout curtains in your house to block the sun. There would be no light that would penetrate from the holy place into the most holy place. You notice that there were uh, incense altars and there were lights everywhere in the holy place. That's what lit it up. But inside there, it was the presence of God that illuminated. The presence of God did not come out of it, and the light from the outside did not go into it. It's important. This was one man from one family, from one tribe, and one nation that could enter the throne room. This is how big a deal this was. Because to be the high priest, you had to be of the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother. You had to be of the tribe of Levi, and only a natural-born Jew could fulfill all of those things. The only way. Now, if you're thinking ahead, you're thinking of Jesus as our great high priest from the order of Melchizedek. So what happened? That veil was torn. You couldn't accidentally do that. There's a good chance the earthquake wouldn't do it, because the temple did not crush. See, this was a supernatural event that took place, because now... The presence of God has a new temple, not made with hands. It's completely different. And our high priest, who is the greatest offerer and offering in this moment, has now sat down, meaning his work is completed. You guys get all of this? So, big deal. 
But then darkness fills the whole earth, and there's a sizable earthquake. The Greek word for earth means the entire earth, not just a section of it. The rocks were rent. It's talking about these massive rocks that were in the earth. They were fragmented. The earth recognized the death of its creator, because just like you and I, the person that hung on that cross is the one who created us all. And as I said before, if that story ended right there, it'd be awesome. It'd be the story of a hero, a man who was taken unnecessarily, who came into the world, was brutally murdered with the message of peace of hope. But this was not just some man. This was the Creator emptying of Himself to come into earth to save His creation. This is powerful. Guys, there's so many things in this story that you could go on and on, but this is the story of power. There's so many details we could, we could hang on, but this is the story of power. You see, He didn't stay in the grave. And that's what we talk about. You see people wearing the cross around? Don't misunderstand me when I say what I'm about to say. But the cross is not our focus. It's not relevant. It's the resurrection. Now, I don't know how you carve an empty grave to wear around in your shirt, like an empty hole. You know, I don't know. I hear they sell blank canvases for like millions of dollars, so you could probably, somebody could do it. Here's a necklace, and on it's the empty grave. You can see there's nothing there. It's... Anyway, if you take that idea and it works, I want 10%. But look at what 1 Corinthians 15, now we're getting to Paul. Paul was not a believer in Jesus during the time of life of Christ. In fact, he was antagonistic against the church. He got permission to capture any Christian that he found, bring him back, and likely kill them. And then he had an encounter with Jesus. So he kind of changed. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which, also, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. If the worship team wants to come on up, that would be great. Here's the thing. You've got to understand what he's doing here. Paul's writing what happened. Men don't rise from the day, but the entire nation of Jerusalem, because it was Passover, was one of the feasts where every able-bodied male Jew was required to go back to Jerusalem. Every one of them. And they would do that. And they would have been there. And so they all saw the hoopla. They all saw what was going on. They all saw him hanging on the cross. They all saw him get taken down. And they all knew that he was in the grave. And that's great. But then what does he say? He said, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. He was seen by Cephas. Then by the twelve. And then over 500 people at one time, many of which are whom alive. In other words, if you don't believe me, go ask them. They saw him too. They saw the same event. They saw him die. You know Paul was there. You know Paul saw him on that cross. All of this was according to the scriptures. All of it. Because this was all foretold. You've got to understand something. The death on the cross of Jesus was prophesied 500 years prior to the invention of the cross. And in order for this to be fulfilled, it had to be done through Roman hands because the Jews uh, brought corporal punishment by stoning, not a cross. Only the Romans could. 
But why does that matter? In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, it says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Remember, I said the Sadducees. They did not believe in this. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen is empty and your faith is also empty yes and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise for if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen your faith is futile and you are still in your sins then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men but the most pitiable If Christ did not rise, there's no resurrection of the dead. If Christ did not rise, then he is not the Son of God. And my preaching is in vain, and your faith is useless. Look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead, and he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so even in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, and He puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power, for He must reign till He's put all enemies under His feet, that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for He's put all things under His feet. But when He says all things are put under Him, it is evident that He put all things under Him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, if you'll stand up with me. You should have received communion cup. And if you didn't, we'll get one for you now. We've got some up here to the front, and we can get them out and passed out. But you've got to understand what's happening. When he said the cup after supper, it's the cup of redemption. For this reason, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. What are the works of the devil? death. You see, you've got to understand what is happening. And all of this is for naught. Do you realize that being here today doesn't make a difference? It doesn't matter if you go to church every day or you give thousands of dollars to the ministry every year. What matters is if you have entered into this new covenant that Jesus has bought with His blood and become born again. There is no magic formula. Romans 10, 9 and 10 said, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. John 3, 16, as he's explaining to Nicodemus, he's telling him that I have so loved the world that my Son has come, that you would have life everlasting. You see, all we do is we turn from our ways and we say, Jesus Thank you. I want what you have for me. That's what we do. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, this is still Paul. He says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died in sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, all it takes is accepting Jesus as your Lord and making Him your Savior, believing what He did. And if that's something you want to do as we take communion, you see, this is something that has turned into kind of this religious exercise. But this was a part of the Passover. And Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 12. He said, this is my body. And it was broken for you and I and everybody who will come after us and everybody who came before us. He says, as often as you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. Let's do this together. Remember what he said. He said, he took the cup after supper. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's not like the old one. The old one based on your ability to keep it. But this new one is based on the works that Jesus did. You see, when it comes to the faith of followers of Jesus, it is no longer a series of do's. Do this, do that. Jesus has done it all. Partake together. You see, giving your life to Christ is a simple exercise, but it's a lifelong commitment. Because then you die to yourself. You live to Christ. Let's worship together. Decked my fold, built her before you, silence the boast of sin and grief. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again. You have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grief. Heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. What a powerful.
powerful name it is. Powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. The name of One more time. What a powerful. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. Powerful name it is. Come on, church, let's just lift up our hands and give thanks to Him today. Oh, Father, we are so grateful for all that You have done. And while it's easy to get lost in the monotony of the world and the times of the seasons that we live, Lord, may we never lose heart of what you have done for us. May we never lose focus of what you have given for us and what you have poured out for us and all the things that you took in our place, Lord. We're so grateful. For what you have done. That nothing can stop you. Nothing can separate us from your love. When that veil was torn down and your throne was now exposed, you said, you enter boldly into my throne room and you find grace when you need it. Lord, we are so grateful for that grace. Father, you are so good to us. You are so good to us. Thank you, Jesus. Death could not hold you. Built all before you. Silence the boasts of sin and grief. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again. That's right. And you have no rival, you have no equal, now and forever, God, you reign, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the... Let's do that again. Death could not hold him. And death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring. The praise of your glory. For you are raised to life again. And you have no rival. 
and you have no equal. And now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. A powerful name it is. Powerful church. Nothing could stand against the powerful name it is, the name. The name above every name, the name of which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Church, you have to recognize today what that man did for you. He gave up his sonship to come to this earth as a man to enter his creation, to die the death that we deserved. He poured out His blood for us. His body was broken for us. And now we take that moment for granted that once a year we celebrate it. But every day should be a celebration of the goodness of God. We have lost our way, church. We have lost sight to what matters. It is time for the body of Christ to rise back up, take its rightful place, and be the hands and feet of the Son of God in this earth. We will no longer bow to the enemy. We will no longer bow to the culture. We will rise to the place where Jesus is seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father. And we are His body, church. We are His mouthpiece. We are His hands and feet. It is time for us to rise up where Christ called us to be. Can I get an amen? It's not enough to walk through life and play religion. Jesus didn't die to create some new type of church. He died to fulfill mankind. It is the power of God that rose Him from the dead. It is the power of God that now dwells in us. And it's time that we act like it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. There's no reason to leave here the way you came in. There's no reason. You want Jesus in your life. You want that transformation. All you got to do is ask Him. All you got to do is reach out and say, Jesus, I'm sorry. And I receive what you did for me. But I will not walk in the darkness of this world anymore. But I will walk in the fullness of your light. Oh, God, you're so good. You're so good. Father, we are so grateful. We are so grateful. That no matter what they threw at him, he overcame it. We are so grateful. 
Lord, today, as we leave this place, I pray that we'll be conscious of your spirit, conscious of your presence, aware of our shortcomings and where we have fallen, but Lord, I thank you that you are bringing us through. Today, Lord, we worship you, united in heart, mind, and purpose to give glory to your name. That every word we speak and every action we take will bring glory to you, Lord. That it is no longer about us. That old man died on the cross with you and was buried in that grave with you. And in the same way, the new man was resurrected with you. We are no longer what we were. We are what you called us to be, Lord. God, you are so good to us. Lord, I pray as we go out of this place today that you are with us each and every moment. That we are aware of where we are and what we're doing. And that we will be drawn closer to you each and every day. We will not allow the footholds of the enemy to set in, Lord, but that we will rise above that. And God, I just thank you for these wonderful people. For these wonderful people who love you and want to serve you. That we will not be a people who have simply made Jesus our Savior, but we have made Him Lord over our lives. Lord over our desires. Lord over our wants. He is Lord over our needs. He is Lord over our mouths. He is Lord over our bodies. And everything we say is to bring glory to the name above all names. That powerful name of Jesus. God, You are so good. Father, I thank You for all that You've done and continue to do in our hearts and lives. God, I thank you that your spirit is moving. And I thank you that you're convicting hearts right now of areas of which we need to change because we want to rise up to the glory that you have called us to be. And so, Lord, I thank you that we just shout your name everywhere we go. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Church, be blessed. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. You are dismissed.